Bibles. Um, or if you have notes, please make sure you have notes. Let's read together our, I can read for us, Hebrews 6, 1 to 6. Hebrews 6, 1 to 6. Here is what the author of Hebrews said. Therefore, leaving the discussion of the elementary principles of Christ, let us go on to perfection, not laying again the foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God, instructions of baptisms, of laying of hands, of resurrection of the dead, and of eternal judgment. And this will do if God permits. But uh, for it is impossible for those who were once enlightened and have tasted the heavenly gift and have become partakers of the Holy Spirit and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come, if they fall away to renew them again to repentance, since they crucify again for themselves the Son of God and put him to open shame. Amen. All right, so we have been uh, in Hebrews now for 23 weeks. Uh, we're shooting for six months almost, which is wonderful. Uh, again, we are talking about how the, the, the author of Hebrews has written his book to people who were Jewish at some point, and then they became Christian, and now they wanted to go back to Judaism. So the author of Hebrews wrote that letter to them to encourage them never to consider go back to Judaism and never to apostatize and leave Christ. If you can tell that passage that we just read, is pretty powerful. Um, again, the first 10 chapters, he's just arguing the superiority of Christ. And throughout the book, he gave five warnings to his readers. The one we're in right now, chapter 6, pretty much started in chapter 5 uh, last week, verse 11. And all the way till the end of chapter 6, it's pretty much one of stern warning he's given them. And that's his third warning telling them never to ever think about abandoning Christ. We've seen last week how he was rebuking them for the lack of their maturity. You guys remember? They needed to, he said, by this time you should be able to have, to be teachers, but you still need somebody to teach you the, the beginning of the oracles of God. You should be able to digest solid food, but you still need somebody else to feed you milk, which is for, for kids and for children and babies. And then he said, by now, by now, you should be able to be mature in your walk with Christ, just like those who are, uh, who, whose senses through exercising can discern what is good from evil. That's where we left chapter 5. And then he picks up here from chapter 6, verse 1. Therefore, so again, what does that word tell us? Tell us that what is coming is built on what he just finished. He just rebuked their immaturity, and he's telling them you need to be mature. You need to leave that ABC of Christianity and move on to the more solid food. And then he said, therefore, because you need to mature, you need to digest solid food and forsake the milk, leaving, here is the, the afterword, the conclusion, leaving the discussions of the elementary principles of Christ, let us go, um, go unto perfection not laying again the foundation of the elementary principles of Christ. So in spite of their immaturity that he just rebuked at the end of chapter 5, he's saying, you know what? I'm just going to hold you by the hand right now, and we're going to move on to some solid food. We're not going to go back to feed you milk again. We're just going to go on to solid food. And then he said, leaving the discussion of the elementary principles of Christ. 
When he's talking about leaving the discussion, he's not talking about abandoning the elementary principles of Christ. You guys are with me? He's not saying, this is not important anymore. Let's just not worry about it. Don't, don't even think that you ever heard it. Let's move on to something totally different. Every single time that Greek word was used, leaving um, that discussion, it's, it's more like lead standing that discussion. So it's not like he's saying we're going to abandon the elementary principles of Christ. Rather, he's saying we're going to build on the elementary principles of Christ. You guys are with me? It's like when you have a project and you have stage one, stage two, stage three, and they all after each other. And then you tell your coworker, okay, now let's leave stage one and move on to stage two. It doesn't mean that you're abandoning stage one. It's more like you're building on what you have just already accomplished. And that's what he's saying. We're going to build on the elementary principles of Christ. And then he lists how many elementary principles in the rest of chapter, verse 1 and verse 2. Which are, here is his elementary principles. Number one, repentance from dead works and faith to God. Actually in Greek, these kind of linked together. And then he said instructions of baptisms, laying of hands, resurrection from the dead, and eternal judgment. And these last two kind of link together as well. And it seems like he's dividing these elementary principles of Christ to two major parts. There is the foundation, and then there is the instruction or the doctrine. The foundation is consisting of two parts that is kind of related together. Repentance from dead works and faith toward God. And then the second part of these elementary uh, principles of Christ is instructions regarding baptisms, layings of hands, and then the last two, resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. He linked them together in Greek as well, which shows us that these two are very closely connected. So these two are tight as one unit versus the baptisms and the layings of hands. Are you guys with me? So he listed about six different um, items here in the elementary principles of Christ. Let's go by, just skim through them real quick. Number one is the foundation of repentance from dead work and faith toward God. Now, this is one of the very clear scriptures in the Bible that links repentance and faith together. So many verses in the scripture says that we receive salvation by faith. And so many verses in the scripture tells us that we receive salvation by repentance. And it seems like, which one is it? Repentance or faith? Where well, it's actually both. Because the saving faith, the, the faith that actually gets you into the kingdom of God is just another word for repentance. And that's what the author of Hebrews is telling us here. Repentance from dead works in a negative sense and moving by faith toward God in a positive sense. You guys are with me? Yeah. And these two things are just one unit. We have a story that shows us how faith and repentance, and I'm talking about saving faith, and repentance is connected together. Faith in the scripture has five different meanings. The word faith has five different kinds of faith. We're not going to talk about that today. We're going to talk about the saving faith, the kind of faith by which you can enter into the kingdom of God. And that's another word for repentance. And we see an example of that in Luke chapter 7, verse 36 to verse 50. Jesus was at um, the house of Simon the Pharisee. And everybody's having a good time. And then comes this adulterous woman. And she comes at Jesus' feet. She washes his feet with her tears and dries them with her hair. 
And what did Jesus say to her? He said, your faith have saved you. This lady wasn't sick. She, wasn't, she didn't need healing. She really needed forgiveness of sin. That was the one thing on her heart, right? And what did Jesus say? Your faith has saved you. But what kind of faith? What did this lady actually do that showed us that she had faith? What did she do? Number one, she knew that she's a sinner, right? Right? She knew she's bad. There's no question in her mind about that. It seems to me that she really regretted being a sinful woman. How do you know? Because she was crying and weeping at Jesus' feet because she's broken because of her sins and she felt the weight, the shame, the guilt of her sins before God and she wanted really to have peace and forgiveness of her sins. So she, she knew she's a sinner. Number two, she regretted and felt sorrow for her sins. But number three, she knew she can do nothing about it, hence she went to Jesus, right? If she could have figured it out in her own, she would not be at Simon the Pharisee's house when Jesus was there. Amen? She probably heard a story after story about Jesus forgiving sinners. You remember a couple of times he forgave people for their sins? He might, she might heard about Jesus when they uh, brought down that guy from the ceiling. And first thing Jesus tells him, hey, your sins are forgiven. I'm forgiving your sins. She might heard that story and say, you know what? Jesus might be able to forgive my sins too. And because of her trust, that trust in her heart, that Jesus will accept her and is able to forgive her sins, and she acted on that trust by actually going to Christ, showing him regret, that is the kind of faith that, that has saved her. You guys are with me? It's repentance. She just wanted to repent of her sins and wanted to start a new beginning. And she trusted that Jesus would be all sufficient to give that to her. And that is the faith that gets people saved. So faith and repentance are pretty much two um, faces of the same coin, right? And the author of Hebrews makes that abundantly clear here. So the foundation of the Christian relationship with God is two things. Negatively, repentance from, good, from, bad de from evil deeds, and then positively, faith toward God. But also, there's doctrine, there's teachings of different things. There's doctrine of baptism, of layings of hands, and then the resurrection from the dead and eternal judgment, right? These are all the elementary principles of Christ. The first thing is the doctrine of baptisms. Now, this is a hard one. I, I don't know exactly what the author of Hebrews is trying to tell us here. It's just difficult. He's using a Greek word that has more to do with ceremonial cleansing rather than just the word baptism that we see over and over and over in the New Testament. So the idea here of ceremonial cleansing being part of the elementary principle of Christ, I don't know what he's talking about. I don't think anybody knows. Uh, it seems to me that from F.F. Uh, F. Bruce, one of the great commentators, said that it seems that this is something going on at the church during that time that you and I will, we just don't do anymore. And um, that's what he's probably was referring to here. It's a, it's a difficult phrase, and I, I don't know exactly what he's referring to. But yeah, it, it might be like some sort of ritual uh, cleansing that in spite of the fact that the early Christian did not believe that this cleansing will get you into heaven. It might be like our communion, like, you know, when you actually get baptized or some of the ceremony that we do here at the 21st century church, they used to do that back then just as a way of showing, um, you know, ceremonially that they have been cleansed from the inside by Christ. Probably that's what the author of Hebrews was referring to here. But then 
the doctrine of baptism, and then he moves on to the layings of hands. This is part of the elementary principles of Christ. In the early church throughout the New Testament, we see that you can receive physical healing, but the laying of hands, like in Mark 16 and in Acts 7, Acts 9, the baptism and the filling of the Holy Spirit can be received by laying of hand, Acts 8 and Acts 19. The gifts of the Holy Spirit, whether prophecy or speaking in tongues or whatever, some of the gifts of the Holy Spirit can be received by the laying of hands. And people were consecrated to the ministry, set aside to the ministry by the laying of hands. And we see that in Acts 6 and Acts 13. So the early church really, really paid very good attention to the laying of hands. I think we, um, in the 21st century, we need to go back to that. Even in our congregation here, I think this is important to us. Uh, it's, it's, a, it's a massive ministry, and we need to look into that. I know when I was reading this, I was like, man, we need to pay more attention to the laying of hands. Amen? So, uh, but the laying of hands is elementary principle of, of, of Christ. This is ABC Christianity again. This is like the beginning of Christianity. And then he linked together the resurrection from the dead and the eternal judgment, and he combined them as one, pretty much one event. It's people are being raised from the dead so they can face the eternal judgment. That's pretty much what he's saying. Amen? Whether you're a Christian, you're going to receive rewards. And if you're not a Christian, then you're going to receive the eternal punishment from God. Resurrection from the dead and eternal judgment. And then he said, let us be carried forward to perfection. And in Greek, that's passive tense. That's, that's a passive tense, not an active tense. It's not like let us go forward to perfection. Rather, let us be carried away to perfection. Because he's saying that it is God who's doing the perfection in us. We're just passive recipient into that process. But we just still have to be obedient and exhibit faith. You guys are with me? God will do the perfection if we just allow him to do that. And then he moves on to verse 4 and 6. A couple, three verses that is probably the most problematic verses in the New Testament, if not in the whole scripture. Amen? He says this in verse 4 and 6, For it is impossible for those who are once enlightened and have tasted the heavenly gift have be, and have become partakers of the Holy Spirit and have tasted the good, work, the good word of God and the powers of the age to come, if they fall away, uh, to renew them again to repentance, since they crucify again for themselves the Son of God and put him to public shame. Before we uh, uh, like discuss the difficulty of this passage, let's just break it down first. Uh, go through it and see what he's talking about here. In Greek, he, wore the word, he put the word impossible in an emphatic position. He is like emphasizing that this is absolutely impossible. And he started that sentence with it to say this is absolutely no question that those who know Christ to that level and then fall away, there is absolutely no way that they ever will ever be restored back to repentance. Amen? So the word impossible here is emphatic. Number two, the word once. It says here this, for it is impossible for those who were once enlightened. Now, the word once here, this is the first time the author of Hebrews used the word once. He used it many times before. He used it in nine, chapter 9, verse 7, 26, and 27, and 28. That's four times in chapter 9. And then chapter 10, verse 2, and then chapter 12, 26, and 27. So that's four, five, six, seven times other than here that the author of Hebrews is using the word once. And every time he uses that word, he's using to emphasize the quality of an event that absolutely took place. There is absolutely no question about it. 
Let me just give you a couple of examples. In, in, in Hebrews 9, I think 27 and 28, talks about Christ and says this, that if he was like the old high priest, he needed to go into the holy places many times to offer a sacrifice. But because he's much better, he entered once into the heavenly places to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Amen? So once in that context, he's talking about an absolute event that took place. There is no question about it, right? In chapter 10, verse, I think, uh, 2, it says this. Um, by this will we are sanctified by the offering of the body of Christ once and for all. So the idea over and over again of using that, verse, using that word is, is emphasizing the quality of an event that absolutely took place. There is no question about it. Amen? Mm -hmm. And what, that's what he's saying here. These people, they're not like kind of enlightened. They were actually very enlightened. They kind of like did not just have a, a taste of the heavenly gift. They actually had a full mouth and fully digested that heavenly gift. They didn't just know the Holy Spirit. They were active partakers with the Holy Spirit. And you can take that word once with every single description of these people to emphasize that this experience was as genuine and as real as it can possibly be. You guys are with me? All right. So the word once is absolutely important here. Not only that, it says that these people have been enlightened, right? This word, the author of Hebrews used it twice. Here in Hebrews 6, 4, and he used it also in Hebrews 10, 32, when he says this, but recall the former days in which you were illuminated, enlightened is the exact same word. After you were illuminated, you endured a great struggle with suffering. In, in, in Hebrews 10, 32, he's absolutely talking about their absolute conversion, how they came to know Christ and they loved him so much that they didn't even mind suffering for his sake afterward. So the word enlightened when he used it in chapter 10, it's not talking about somebody who actually seen a dim of a light. He's talking about somebody who has been absolutely enlightened from the inside, like God has enlightened their hearts to know Christ. Amen? Amen. And every time, pretty much, uh, at least most of the times, that word is used throughout the, the New Testament. It talks about a genuine enlightenment by the Holy Spirit. It's not talking about knowing about God. It's talking about knowing God himself. This is as a genuine of a salvation as it can ever get. Amen? It says that they have been once enlightened, and then it says the word that they have tasted and what they have tasted? They have tasted the heavenly gift. That's in verse 4. And in verse 5, we see that they have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come. Now, the word tasted is debated back and forth. Because if you don't believe that people can lose their salvation, then you have to argue that the word tasted here doesn't mean that they actually, like, really, really, really been saved. You just have to say they just tasted it like, you know, they took a, a bite. They just know what it tastes, but it's not really genuine salvation. Those who say that this passage talks about genuine believers who can lose their salvation argue the opposite. The problem, I mean, I believe a Christian can never get, like, once you're a believer, you, you'll go to heaven. There's no question about that. But the problem with the word taste here is this. This word was used only three times in the book of Hebrews. It was used twice in our passage here, verse 4 and verse 5. And then the last time that the author of Hebrews used that word was in Hebrews 2, 9. He talked about Jesus and he said this, But we see Jesus who was made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death, 
crowded with, crowned with glory and honor, that he might, by the grace of God, taste death for everyone. You guys are with me? So the only other incidents that the author of Hebrews used that word was actually talking about a genuine experience with the full strength of what death is. You guys are with me? Jesus did not come close to death. Jesus died to the full strength and meaning of the word. You guys are with me? Again, I don't believe a Christian can lose their salvation, but if you want to be fair to the text, if you want to hear what the author of Hebrews is saying, he's definitely not talking about a conversion that is not genuine, an experience with God that is not real. He's talking about a real, genuine experience and conversion into Christianity. You guys are with me? It says here that they have tasted the heavenly gift. And then they also have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come. The heavenly gift is probably a reference to salvation, which is a free gift from God to man. And that talks about the inward change of their hearts, that, that that taste was inward. And then from the outward, they have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come. That last part of verse 5 here is probably the author of Hebrews is taking us back to Hebrews 2. When he said, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? The Lord himself has spoken, start speaking about and was confirmed to us by his apostles. God himself bearing witness through signs and wonders and miracles to follow. You guys are with me? So he's saying, you yourself have heard the good news of the gospel and have seen the miraculous power of God. That is probably what the author of Hebrews is talking about here. They have tasted the good news of the gospel. They have heard the gospel. And not only that, they have also tasted and seen and experienced the very supernatural, miraculous power of God. Amen? Amen. So they have tasted inwardly the gift of the heavenly gift and outwardly the message of the gospel and the powers of the age to come. But not only that, they also have become partakers of the Holy Spirit. What does it mean that they have become partakers of the Holy Spirit? Well, part of it might be that they have seen and experienced the supernatural power of the Holy Spirit that, um, that we have just spoken about here in, in Hebrews chapter 2. But, but you can't help it but to try to take that word literally, that they were actually genuine believers who actually were partakers of the Holy Spirit, as if they have part of the Holy Spirit. Amen? Just like you and me, when you become a Christian, you have part of the Holy Spirit. Everywhere else in that book of Hebrews, we see that the readers were partakers of the heavenly calling in chapter 1, verse 3. They are partakers of Christ in chapter 3, verse 14. They are partakers of the discipline that God gives to his children in chapter 12, verse 8. Every other incident, the word partaker was used in the book of Hebrews. No, nobody is questioning that this is talking about real Christians who are experiencing um, real relationship with God. And if you're going to be fair to the text, you have to take partakers of the Holy Spirit in the exact same way. You cannot try to twist this one and say, yeah, this one is not real. Everybody else, everything else is real. Every, every time the word partaker is used is real, except this one time. You can't, you can't do that to God's word. It seems like he's talking about people who are genuinely saved, right? And that is the difficulty of that passage. But these people who appear to be genuinely saved here, he says that they, if they fall away. And that is the craziest part about that passage. Can somebody who knows Christ so intimately and so personally like that actually fall away? That's the difficulty of that passage. But the word fall away that he used here is actually in a past 
uh, aorist tense. That means he's talking about an event that took place at some time in the past, right? So this is not, this is a decision that they actually end up making that they're going to utterly reject Christ. And every time that word used in the Septuagint, in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, it talks about, it, it, it's used in that sense. A deliberate, conscious, utter rejection of God. A decision that a person makes that he has nothing to do with God anymore, and from that day forward, they just leave Christ and go back to something else. He even warned his readers about that in chapter 3, verse 12. He said, don't fall away from the living God, right? And throughout chapter 3 and chapter 4, we've seen the example of that generation of Kaddish Barnea who, who, who experienced the power of God when God took them out of the land of Egypt. Yet, when they came to the land of the promise, they chose willingly to forget all the goodness and the faithfulness of God in the past and made an intellectual decision, a conscious decision that they're not going to trust the promises of God and they're not going to enter into the promised land. You guys with me? It is the same kind of falling away. It's the same kind of rejection that the author of Hebrews here say that somebody can experience Christ to that level can actually make that conscious decision to utterly reject Christ once and for all. It's, it's, it's a difficult passage. You guys are with me? And then it says, if they fall away in that sense, it's impossible to bring them to repentance. Why? Because they crucify again for themselves the Son of God and put him to an open shame. And in Greek, that, that participle crucify and put him is actually in a present tense. So fall away is a past tense, but crucify and put him is a present tense. So it goes like this. If they fall away, they are crucifying for themselves the Son of God, and they are putting him to public shame continuously. You guys are with me? So even though they make one decision in the past to utterly reject God, the consequences of that decision is something they show every single day by crucifying again for themselves the Son of God and by putting him to a public shame. Amen? And, and here, the author of Hebrews is telling us to utterly reject Christ is the exact same thing like being one of these Roman soldiers who actually put the nails in his hand and his feet, who despised him, who spat at him, who rejected him, who tortured him, by actually making a spiritual decision to reject Christ, you are an active participant of the actual crucifixion event. You guys are with me? And then he says, you crucify to himself the Son of God, the one who is so magnificent, who is so high, who is equal to God the Father himself, as we have seen throughout the book of Hebrews. That's how the author of Hebrews understands the word Son of God. You guys are with me. So that shows you, I, I like how, uh, I think it's William Lane, how he put it. He says this, this two um, participles here, crucifying and putting him, express the audacious consequences of the decision to spawn the gift of God. You guys, this is just so powerful words. And that pretty much saying, that entails, that rejection entails to return to the Jewish convictions and practices as well as the public denial of faith in Christ under pressure from the magistrates or a hostile crowd. Remember, a Jewish person 
they don't believe that Jesus is a good person, right? They believe that Jesus is a, is a liar. He came, he said that he's the son of God, he said that he's a prophet, but they actually reject him, claim that he is a false prophet. This is the kind of apostasy that the author of Hebrews is worried that people who might have at some point have a genuine conversion and genuine relationship with God can get to the point of not saying, you know, Jesus can be a good person. No, they get to the point of saying Jesus is a liar. He's a false prophet. Everything he said is not true. He's not the Messiah. We're going to go back to wait on the Messiah. You guys are with me? This is massive. This is your sin. That's why he said it is impossible for those who to who apostatize to that level, who fall away to that level and go back to Judaism, it's impossible that they will ever come back to repentance that can only be granted in Christ. I think he's just talking from a practical perspective. You know, it's if you can get to that point, chances are you will never come back. You will never reconsider Christ or anything like that. It is impossible to restore them again to repentance. Amen? So it's a difficult passage, right? Now let's look into it a little bit. The dilemma of that passage. <clears throat> I mean, this passage has been debated back and forth for about 2,000 years. So I'm not going to solve it to you in the next 10 minutes, okay? <laughs> you know? But we're going to try to look into it and try to be as, as objective as we can and try to just focus on the major points because it's just... You can't win with it. That's the bottom line. If, if you believe that these are genuine Christians, then you have to agree that a Christian can lose their salvation at some point. We know that there's a lot of scripture that teaches against that. And if you believe that these are not genuine Christians, then we have a problem with the text because the text talks about them as genuine Christians. So the bottom line is you can't win. It doesn't matter where you stand. You're going to find some arguments against, against what you think. Amen? But this is pretty much the problem. Is he talking about genuine Christians or he's not talking about real believers? Many people, many commentators try to argue that they're not really genuinely Christian. They're not, they, they know about Christ, they tasted a lot of Christianese, but they're not really Christian. I find that hard to believe. That if you are going to be honest with the text, it seems to me that he's talking about genuine, real people who have real experience with Christ. So any commentator who spins it says they're not real. I just couldn't see their arguments, especially when you actually dig into the text and try to see how the author of Hebrews used the words. If you're going to be fair, you have to argue that these people really have genuine experience with Christ, which, which puts us in a different problem. Can somebody who has a genuine experience with Christ get to the point that they fall away and apostatize and totally reject Christ? I don't know, honestly, like when I've never heard of anything like this till I came to America. And I met uh, when I was at, at the seminary, a friend of mine was telling me about her testimony, how she, she's, she's, a, she's a wonderful believer, loves Jesus with all her might. And um, her husband uh, got radically saved. Uh, her ex-husband got radically saved. He was just in drugs and all this stuff. And then he, he got saved so radically. And he became a pastor, a, a, a pastor in one of the churches. And then they were married, and everything seems to be good. They're serving God and everything. And then this guy somehow ran into his ex-girlfriend or something. And then he left his wife, divorced her, and he went back to his ex-girlfriend or whatever, married her, and he quit the church and quit everything. That was the first time I hear a story like this that was very dramatic, and it really like shook me to the core in a way. What, what is this guy? Is he, was his experience genuine or was not genuine? Um, I don't know. Here's what we can agree on, right? Number one, 
if you're a Christian, if you commit your life to Christ and you walk with him and you exhibit the fruit of the Holy Spirit all the way till you die, we know that you're a Christian. We know that you have eternal life, right? Now, if you say you're a Christian, you experience Christ in so many ways, go to church and your life is transformed in so many ways. Ten years down the road, you go back to abandoning Christ, to, to sin and everything else. We know that you're not going to have eternal life, right? Right? The Bible is clear about that. The tricky part is, during that time that you were walking with Christ, was your experience genuine or was it not real? I honestly think at the end of the day, it's just semantic. Who cares? You know what I mean? The, end, the fact of the matter is, if you ever abandon Christ, then you're not really, you're never, you're never going to make it to heaven. We're not talking about a sin. You guys are with me? We're not talking about saying a lie or, you know, like stealing five bucks or just, whatever. we're not talking about individual sins because none of us is perfect. We're talking about absolute apostasy and getting to the point that you utterly and completely reject Christ. That's what we're talking about here. You guys are with me? Because if one sin going to make Christ abandon you, then I am the first person who's not going to get into heaven. You guys are with me? Because we're not talking about individual sins. We're talking about absolute sin of apostasy. That's what we have on hand here. But the application, the problem with that when it comes to the application is, how about you and me? If this person who walked with Jesus for 10 years and ultimately apostatized, um, if his experience was genuine, does that mean that you and me, there's a chance in 10 years from now that we can apostatize? Because if you look at him during his time when he walks with Christ, you can never tell that he will abandon Christ down the road, right? So what is that supposed to mean to you and me? Should we be scared that maybe down the road, 10, 20 years down the road, each one of us might have the same fate? Let's look into that a little bit. <clears throat> In the parable that Jesus told us about the, 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 the sower, correct? They say that the sower went out. He started casting seed everywhere. And some of these seeds fell on a rocky stone, right? And then... Uh, it, it actually started producing fruit. That's, that plant started growing. But then when, when it started getting tough and the weather started smushing these plants, they actually give up. And he said, there are so many people like that. They, they, they received the word, Jesus said, right? And they start producing some fruit. But once persecution comes, once persecution comes, they just abandon the whole thing and go back because they don't want to commit to enduring persecution. You guys are with me? Now, imagine that there's no persecution yet. And you have two samples in front of your eyes, one on the rocky ground and one on the good ground. Can you tell the difference between these two? You can't, right? They're both coming up, they're both growing, they're both producing fruit. But what makes you tell which one is the good ground and which one is the solid ground? Which one is the rocky ground and which one is the good ground? It's persecution, right? It's toughness. That's what tells you which ground is true, but from the outside, it seems like they're both identical. They're both the same. You cannot tell which one, which ground is rocky and which ground is is um, is, is solid, good, fertile one. And that's pretty much what the author of Hebrews kind of is talking about here. These people have real, genuine experience, just like everybody else. It is persecution that they were facing that will tr about to show, about to show if their relationship with Christ was real, if their ground was good, or his ground was rocky. And now he's urging them. I like how, um, I think that was um, F.F. Bruce again. I like how he said this. He said, it was a time of testing now for the recipients of the epistles, and our author is anxious that they should respond triumphantly to the test and prove that their case, that in their case, the seed has fallen in good ground. You guys are with me? So powerful. 
I think the answer to these questions really, again, I'm just throwing in some thoughts because um, we really don't have an answer. Uh, <clears throat> John actually is the one who solved that problem for us. It's not in Hebrews, it's not in Paul, it's not in the writing of Jesus either. But John tells us two amazing scriptures that we need to look at. First John 3, 9 says this, whoever has been born of God does not sin. He's not talking about committing an individual sin. He's talking about living the life of sin, right? He's, he does not continue in sinning. That's, that's really what the Greek is saying here. Because in other places, he say, if we say we have no sin, we're liars and making God a liar, right? So which one is it? Do we sin or we do not sin? We fall in individual sins, but we don't live the life of sin. You guys are with me? So it says here this, whoever has been born of God does not continue in their sins, does not continue in their life of sin. Here is the character of those who are born of God. For his seed, God's seed, remains in him. That's the Holy Spirit that dwells in you, remains in you, and because the Holy Spirit remains in you as a child of God, you cannot, look at this, he does not live the life of sin. You cannot go back and live the life of sin. That's what he said here. And he cannot sin because he has been born of God. Look at this. He is incapable of. Look at this. This is important. He is incapable of living the life of sin because he has been born of God. You guys are with me? So what if you are actually capable of eventually going back and live the life of sin? Then you're probably one of these seeds that fell on the rocky ground. Yes, you can exhibit some stuff that shows you that you're... Um, conversion is real, but you're not truly a child of God. This is how I look at it, right? Look at this. First John 2.19, another verse. Talks about some people who left the church and left Christ. Look how he described them. They went out from us, but they were not of us. So they were with us for a while, and they stayed with us in a while, and they were brethren for a while, and then they left the church, and when they left the church, that's when we knew that they were not of us. For if they have been of us, they would have continued with us. You guys are with me? The evidence, the evidence that they are part of us is that they continued to be with us. The fact that they did not continue with us, in spite of the fact that they have been with us for years, maybe decades, the fact that they ultimately left tells us that they were not in us, with us in the first place. You guys are with me? But they went out that they might be, that it might, that they might be manifest that none of them was of us in the first place. You guys are with me? What is John trying to tell us here? I believe that what John is telling us here is the same point of the parable of the sword. It's the same exact thing that the author of Hebrews is trying to tell us. Perseverance is the mark of the saints. You guys are with me? Perseverance is the mark of the saints. We know that you are a child of God because you persevered. I don't know 10 years down the road if persecution comes to America, you will abandon Christ or not. I cannot speak to that. But I know if that ever happens, that's when we know if you are a child of God or not. You guys are with me? You guys are with me? Perseverance is the mark of the children of God. If you don't have that mark, then you are not a child of God. And it seems like the New Testament has this tension going on all the time. Again, two faces to one coin. 
In one hand, if you are a child of God, you are promised eternal life and you need to rest secure in the promises of God and who God is. Amen? You don't have to question your salvation. You don't have to live in fear that God will abandon you or that you will abandon God. You don't have to worry about that. That's one side of the coin. The other side of the coin is this. Those who are children of God who have been promised and can rest secure in their eternal salvation will persevere no matter what. You guys are with me? It's not either or. It is not like, you know, I can choose one side of this coin. It's these two sides form one coin. For, a pra for all practical purposes, I was just thinking about that example. In America, there's a 50% chance of marriages, uh, there's 50% of our marriages end up in divorce, even among uh, Christians, which is pathetic. Anyways, if you go to a church and you see a man and his wife standing in front of each other and they are signing these beautiful vows and say, uh, for better or worse, for richer or poorer, till death do us part, I'm going to be yours. Question, how do you know if the man or the woman are actually telling the truth? That they're really going to stick with it no matter what. How do you know? You, you, you will not know, right? There's no way you can know. You do, there's no way to know or tell if the man is telling the truth or if the woman is telling the truth. But do you know, how do you know? If you wait and see, time will tell if they actually meant these commitments or not, Right? If they stick together for better or worse, for richer or poorer, then the commitment they made is actually the jet. They really meant it when they said it. But if they don't, then that commitment wasn't really the jet, right? Yeah. It's, I, I, uh, absolutely. I look at the last two lines here, it says this. It's easy in the excitement of a new relationship to vow to commit all your life to that person. It's easy to do that. It is only when the hardships of life impact that marriage, that's when the genuineness of that commitment or the lack thereof will come forth. You guys are with me? You don't know till hardship comes. Then you will know that this commitment was real or not. Now, think about it this way. If, if a couple get married for 10 years, 15 years, and then ultimately one of the spouses cheat and doesn't hold their vows that they're going to be faithful, and they break that marriage. After 15 years of marriage, one of them breaks it. Have they been married for 15 years, or was that marriage fake for 15 years? Fake. Kind of fake, right? But in the same time, they actually were married. If you would have met them in seven years of the marriage, you will not tell if this, if, if this marriage will fall apart. For all what you see, they seem to be a normal couple, right? But when hardship comes, when things start changing down the road and one of them start abandoning their commitment that they have made 15 years ago, that's when you know that this person ha has not been truthful when they made that commitment, when they stood before God and man and vowed to commit to that one person. You guys are with me? And part of the problem, not just in, mainly a lot in the American church, but not just in the American church, throughout history, we as Christians even participate in that problem. Because when we go out and tell people about Jesus, we don't really tell them what they're committing to. You hear messages and it's like, you know, if you want to have eternal life, raise your hand. Well, everybody want to have eternal life, right? If all what I have to do is to raise my hand to enter into heaven, I raise both hands and my feet too to enter into heaven. That's easy, right? I can do that. But when we present the gospel to people, we don't tell them precisely what they're committing to. We have people who supposedly pray the sinner's prayer, but they don't even feel sorrow for their sins. They don't understand their gravity, how they have broken the law of God, and they're desperate that Christ will come into their heart and change them. Amen? 
I mean, we talked about this. Jesus is the reason of salvation to only those who obey him. The same level of obedience, the same way that he exhibited to the Father when he obeyed him to the, to the, all the way to the cross. You guys are with me? Paul introduced himself almost in every letter he wrote by saying this, Paul, a slave of Jesus Christ. A slave is somebody who has no right, has no will, nothing. All what the slave do is just to please his master who bought him. You guys are with me? That's you and me. When you make a commitment to Christ, you commit yourself to be his slave. You don't have a will. You don't have any rights. You don't have any desires. You just have to do what he wants you to do. Amen? This is a big commitment, right? I mean, the good thing is Christ is such a beautiful and wonderful and loving master, right? Nevertheless, he's still Lord and master, and you have to obey him, no question about it, right? Jesus told his wannabe disciples, he said, this is crazy what he told them before. He said, you have to count the cost. If you're not willing to be 100% purely mine, do whatever I tell you to do, and I be your sole master, don't come and follow me. You guys are with me? You need to count the cost. If you're not in, you're not in. But don't say, I am in, when you're not willing to pay the price of following me. Amen? He said, if you follow me, you have to love me so much that it seems like you're hating your father, your mother, your children, your brothers, your sister, even your own life to be my disciple. Isn't that crazy? Jesus said, you have to be willing to die for me. If you don't love me that much, if you're willing to commit to me that much, you cannot be my disciple. He said, you have to bear your cross, follow me every single day. This is the level of commitment that Christ is expecting and asking from each one of his followers. Are you guys with me? Now, if you're willing to make that kind of commitment, if you have made that kind of commitment to Christ, I don't think you need to worry about your eternal salvation. Amen? Because remember, you made a commitment that even if you have to die for Jesus, you'll die for his sake. Right? That is the commitment that you technically made when you said, Jesus, come into my heart and be Lord and Savior. You guys are with me? That means it doesn't matter what kind of persecution will come your way. You are resolved to do whatever it takes to exalt his name. If you have made that commitment to Christ, you don't have to worry about your eternal salvation. You guys are with me? But if you have not made that commitment to Christ, chances are maybe, on, I don't know, when persecution comes, because you really didn't commit to that. You didn't commit to laying your life down for Jesus. You said, hey, I raise my hand, I'll have eternal life, live, on my, live my middle class white American life, and hey, you know, just go to church once a week, pay my tithe, and then go to heaven. That doesn't sound too bad to me. It's not like that, my friend. Amen? Amen? So if you have not made that commitment, you, I don't know. You might stick still through the persecution or you might abandon Christ. I don't know about that. Nobody knows. We'll know when the persecution comes. You guys are with me? But all what we have to do is, if you're here today, let's just don't question what's going to happen 10 years down the road. Just make the commitment today and resolve it in your heart. No matter come my way, I'm Christ. I'm his child. If I have to die for his name, I'll do it. And if that's the commitment you have in your heart, you don't have ever to question your eternity or God will abandon you or you will ever abandon Christ. Are you guys with me? Let's just leave it like that. Amen. <laughs> Let's close our eyes and pray.